when I'm selling shares of our units, you know, what I'll say to people is, look, we're going to be on the same team for a long time. So let's take some time up front, get to know each other. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. I'm your host, Taylor Lode. Thank you for tuning in today. Today, our guest is Joel Block. Joel is a real estate investor who has a, a fascinating history, started out in real estate, got out of real estate, got into venture capital, and then over the years, got back into real estate after, well, you're going to learn why he got out of venture capital and got back into real estate. We're going to touch on that. We're going to talk about a lot of the important differences between venture capital and real estate on the show today. A lot of investors, especially higher net worth investors, higher income earning investors, higher income professionals, consider investing in venture capital. And why wouldn't you? You see the success stories of people that got started at Facebook early on and bought you know, shares for pennies, 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 pennies. And then when the company went public, they're selling and making five to 10,000 X their original investment. Sounds great. The reality can be a bit different for venture capital investors. So you're going to learn about that today. As a fun conversation, he has so much knowledge. I really enjoyed this one. You're going to enjoy it as well. Without further ado, here is the interview. Joel, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to talk to you. You have a super interesting background, starting uh, in real estate and getting into venture capital and getting back into real estate and, and everything you've learned along the way, starting your own company, selling it off. Can you give our listeners uh, a preview or, or a glimpse into your professional history and, and what got you to where you are now? Well, I won't take them back to kindergarten, <laughs> Professional but, uh, but I, right out of college, I worked at Pricewaterhouse, the, uh, the big CPA firm, the international firm, and uh, it didn't work out for me. I, I did become a CPA and I, I still am licensed all these years later. But uh, what, what did happen for me was that uh, the last account at Pricewaterhouse was a giant real estate syndicator. Uh, and my job with an army of other guys was to do the books and records, convert them into tax returns for 500 wow. partnerships. And it was, it was the most dreadful work, but I loved reading the partnership agreements. And, and I looked at how much money they were making. And I said, you know what? This is the business I want to be in. This is exactly what I want to do. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's where it is. That's pretty cool. That, that got you into real estate, got you out of the 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 boringness i guess of, of being an accountant so i i quit the firm and went into real estate syndication i i met another guy the two of us syndicated a little building we cold called a bunch of doctors we broke every rule <laughs> there was uh we didn't know any better at the time but we uh we we raised uh i forget what was uh you know what one hundred and sixty five thousand dollars or something from 22 doctors at wow. 7500 bucks a piece and then we did our first deal and we uh, made some money and then we did another deal and we did a total of about eight deals in the late eighties. And, and then I fell into a venture capital transaction. And, you know, here's the thing is that once you learn how to raise capital, uh, which is an art form, by the way, raising capital is an art form. Once you learn how to do it, uh, you can raise money for anything. So whether it's for real estate, venture, making films, building bridges, you know, uh, it doesn't matter what you're doing, uh, raising money, the process is always the same. So, uh, you know, I've raised money for an awful lot of deals. I've been a principal probably in 40 deals now. And, you know, and, and presently I run a hedge fund. That is pretty cool. I mean, can we 
Go back to the beginning of raising capital. I mean, you said you broke a bunch of rules, but as you're learning this art form, I mean, I, I want to, you know, let's both become, or or, or hopefully uh, you can become the Bob Ross of capital raising today on this conversation. Bob Ross taught everybody how to paint the art form of painting. Maybe, you know, you can teach everybody how to, how to raise capital the right way. Well, raising, you know, listen, uh, there, there's, there's a lot to it and it's not all about selling. You know, you can have, um, you know, when you build a building, you got to have good architecture, got to have good engineering, got to have good construction, you know, and then you got to have good leasing agents. I mean, all the pieces have to work together. And, you know, a lot of people really don't focus on some of those pieces. They really just focus on the, um, on just the end product, just the selling part. And, and really, you know, the bottom line is this, you have to give investors a deal they can say yes to. If you give them a crappy deal, they're going to say no. And I don't care if you're the best money raiser in the world, they're going to say no. You know, if the deal is too one-sided, if the terms are too unfriendly, and, and we can talk about what some of these things mean, but if the deal is too lopsided, uh, people are going to say no, or they're going to send it to their attorney and their CPA, and the attorney or CPA is going to say no, or or they're not going to say no, but they'll dissuade <laughs> the person from moving forward. You know, uh, you know whether it's in verbal language or in body language, they're somehow going to dissuade them, and and so you have to get all the pieces moving in the same direction, and and when you do that, uh, then you have a chance to sit down with a person and qualify them. I mean, listen, you could have the best deal in the world. And the person says, I just don't like real estate. I don't like it. Uh, you know, or I don't understand apartments or I don't want to do construction. So, you know, again, that's another thing is if you're pitching the deal to the wrong person, you're not going to succeed. So, uh, you know, some of this is it's sales 101, but it's not syndication 101 because syndicators, early stage syndicators. And, you know, and, and I don't know if you know this or not, but twice a year we run a program where we take guys and we teach them the syndication mm -hmm. business in great detail. We got one of those programs coming up here pretty quick, but it, it's um, it's an awesome program. We have taught a lot of guys how this works and a lot of guys are making an awful lot of money. I mean, I'm not talking about like a, like a fix and flip amount of money. I'm talking about a lot. Nice. Well, you know, we'll, we'll have to get into that. I, you know, and you said that the, the sales sales skills and syndication skills are different. I mean, can you tell us about what that means? I mean, syndication skills, you, you're running a business, sales skills, you're selling. So so first, let's talk about the difference between a syndication and a fund. A syndication is a project. It's, it's a deal. You find a deal and you go get the money for the deal and you put it together in a certain way. And the way you do that is, you know, and Wall Street, what Wall Street's really good at is taking an asset and slicing it up like a loaf of bread so each person can buy as much of that loaf of bread as they want. So the price of the shares are $25,000. I'll take one share. I'll take five shares, three shares, two shares, 20 shares. People can buy as much as they want. And, and then, you know, the money all goes into a pool and everybody owns a little piece of the pool. That's the way, that's the Wall Street way. And, you know, I mean, is it, as you, you know, if you're going to do a little teeny syndication, that's fine. But if you're going to start doing stuff a little bit bigger, you want to kind of organize yourself properly. And there's there's a lot of tools. It's a lot like playing golf. You know, when you're first getting started, you're thinking, uh, you know, like, I don't even know what I'm doing. But if I sent you out on a golf course and I sent you out, the only club I gave you was a driver, you wouldn't play much of a game of golf. 
But that's how most operating agreements are, is they, they just give you so little control that as you get a little further down the path and you go, wow, I'm starting to really kind of get how this works. I wonder if I could do this and this. And then you find out, well, it's not built in the operating agreement, so no, you can't. Well, I wonder if I can raise more money. Well, if you didn't write the operating agreement, no, you can't. Or what if I could take these fees? Well, if it's not in the operating agreement, no, you can't. Well, gee, if I would have thought about those things, I sure would have liked it. And, and that's really the difference between having a business person help you structure your transaction and having an attorney do it. You need to have an attorney put all this together, but you don't want your attorney helping you make the business decisions because that's not their business. Their business is not about making business decisions. Their business is about giving legal advice, which I don't mm -hmm. do because I'm not an attorney. But I tell people, look, these are the fees you want to charge. This is how you want to set up your, uh, your, your shares, your structures, your classes of shares. This is how you want to move your assets around. These are the controls that you want to build in. Now, let's give those instructions to an attorney and have the attorney write them down properly so that it would uh, stand the test of time in a court of law or otherwise. So, you know, those are some really significant things. And, and then as far as so that's the difference between a syndication or that's what a syndication is, a project or a deal. And a fund is an ongoing structure that's going to last a long time. You know, that's so uh, in a syndication, you buy it, you fix it, you sell it, you share the profit, give the money back to the people that's and it. then you're done. And then then you start over again. You go buy another deal and you got to call the people and get the money back if they have it. Maybe they mm -hmm. do. Maybe they don't. You know, in a fund, what a fund does is a fund has the money in advance. It buys the asset. It fixes it, organizes it, does whatever it's going to do, sells it distributes the profit to the people, but you keep the principal and then you go do another deal. So a fund has an ongoing life and it can last for a long time. And, you know, you can let the people out after a while or whatever, but, but it has a certain lifetime that it's going to operate. A fund, it has a lot longer lockup period, a syndication, it's going to end and you part ways and you raise money again. But at the end of the day, the investors are trusting the operator either of the fund or the syndication with their hard-earned money. So getting into that sales aspect of either running a fund or a syndication, you know, how does maybe trust play a role or Oh, listen, I mean, I mean it it plays the whole role. It's everything, you know? I mean, people are giving you their cash. I mean, that's that's very significant. They're giving you their assets to uh to basically be their steward. Your your job is stewardship of assets. So you have to know what you're doing. You have to be able to demonstrate that you've got a track record, that you're able to come through on the promises that you make. So if you tell people we're going to buy this building, uh, you have to know how to buy a building. Today can't be your first day. One of the things uh, that's imperative is you can't practice with the investor's <laughs> money. They don't want you to practice with their money. It's like doctors. You know, you, they practice on cadavers for a reason. You know, can't mess I mean, those, those are those are low value targets, right? I mean, you know, you can't have a, a doctor practicing on a real person. I mean, so same thing. We can't practice on these investors. We have to get our practice somewhere else and then bring those skills to the table, uh, you know, when we're better at it. We, that's our track record. It's a demonstration that we've got our practice. So, you know, we, uh, we do that and then we bring to the investors a good track record and we're good to go and, and that all works out. Hmm. How does, so there's a, there's a track record component. How does maybe a character or demeanor or kind of the, the interpersonal aspect of this play a role in establishing that trust? I mean, well, let me, let me put it like hmm. this, unless you are an 
all-time superstar on Wall Street. Uh, you know, you're you're the maverick, the genie, the genius. You're you know, you're something magical. Uh, unless you are something magical, uh, I think that a uh, a negative, cantankerous, unfriendly personality is is not going to be <laughs> desirable. Most people, you know, most of us operate in the range of good to very good, not not like off the chart, right? So, uh, uh, you know, and, and even those off the charts, by the way, a lot of times they either turn out to be fake or they turn out to be short term or something else. I mean, so there really isn't such a thing. It's like on a scale of one to 10, most of us operate between six and nine. Mm-hmm. That's where we operate. Uh, we don't get to 10 because 10s are mythical and hopefully you don't go much lower than, than a six, you know, you know, or even maybe stay in the seven, eight, nine range is kind of even better. But, uh, you know, the, um, the investors, the they, they're trusting you. They're, they they need to call you once in a while. They need to know that they can have some relationship with you. They need to uh, they need to feel comfortable. You're actually going to be uh, become part of their family in a certain way. I mean, I got investors that every time they come to town, they call me. We go to lunch, meet with the wife, you know, the, the, the family. Uh, you know, if uh, if something was to happen to the guy, uh, you know, I'd have to deal with their family. I mean, so you know, I mean, so you kind of create relationships with people that are pretty substantial. So you look at it. Um... And this is a good thing. You look at it from kind of a long-term type of relationship building thing, and you, and you want these investors to stick with you. When when I when I uh, am selling this, when I'm selling shares of our units, you know what I'll say to people is, look, we're going to be on the same team for a long time. So let's take some time up front, get to know each other. You may not like me, I may not like you, or we may like each other. You know, but at any time, either one of us has the right to put up our hands and say it's not working and that's how it goes. And so it's a very uh, bilateral kind of arrangement and and that helps them. I mean, I find that when you say that to people, it's like it empowers them, but at the same time, it endears them to you because you're being honest with them. I mean, you've just given them an out if they don't want to do it. And if somebody says, this isn't going to work for me, I don't yell and scream and stomp my feet, uh, you know, because if it's not going to work out for you now, Six months from now, it's not going to be a lot better. It's going to be worse. So I'd rather find out now that this is not a good thing. The other thing is that, you know, you have to ask people a lot of hard questions like, uh, how many of these deals have you ever done before? Where did the money come from? You know, well, I inherited it from my grandmother. Oh, that's excellent. That's lucky for you. Uh, How much more money do you have than this? Well, this is all I got. Well, then I can't take it from you because, you know, you don't have the income earning power to, to get this again. You have to think if something went wrong, where would the person be? I mean, we have a responsibility for people and we have to you know, take care of the people as best we can. So, you know, that's that's it. So I think when you demonstrate some concern for them, when you ask them questions, uh, you know, and I tell people on the front, I say, look, I'm going to ask you a lot of hard questions, uh, you know, but but they're questions that I need the answers to. I'm not asking you these questions just to socialize uh, because I'm curious. I mean, I really need to know the answers to these questions in order for me to, you know, really consider doing something with you in the future. That's a good way to put it. And I think those are, are very good questions to ask. I mean, you don't want to accept someone's bottom dollar. You know, like you said, if something goes wrong, you don't want to be, you know, responsible for their financial situation and, you know, that not going well. Yeah, I, I try, you know. I mean, you, you know, you don't get it perfect every time, but I'll tell you, you know, you gotta you gotta try. So, you know, those are those are some basic things. And then on top of that, uh, you know, when you're selling, uh, you know, the deal has to make sense. It has to be a, a, a well-structured deal. So, for example, one of the things that I see a lot of uh, earlier stage guys doing 
is they'll make up their own deal terms. They'll just make them up out of thin air and they'll say, here's a good idea that I think I want to do. And they'll, they'll write it down or they'll have the attorney write it down. And then they take the investors. The investors say, well, uh, I don't understand what this is. Uh, well, here's what it means. And then they send it to the accountant and the attorney. And the accountant and attorneys, both of them learn about this in law school or CPA school. And they go, uh, I don't understand what this is. I've never seen anything like it before. So then they say to the prospective client, uh, would you like us to study these documents for about 10 hours and give you an opinion? So you're going to pay, you know, five or $10,000 for them to get an opinion. The guy goes, nah, forget it. I'll do some other deal instead. So that's why you want to do an industry standard kind of deal that they look at it. They go totally get what it is. Uh, I've seen this exact same kind of deal a million times. Uh, of course, the attorney, and the accountant doesn't, isn't able to comment on the real estate or they can't comment on the deal in particular, but they can comment on the basics of the deal, which is what the client wants from them. And, you know, you don't want to give the client, uh, you know, something where they're embarrassed to go to their attorney because it's so silly. You know, you just you got to make sure that you're showing up looking sharp, that you that you uh, that you bring to the table the goods that that they're expecting. Otherwise, they're going to say no. And I don't care how great of a money raiser you are. They're going to say no. So you have to bring, you know, a good deal. Your real estate's got to be good. You got to bring good deal terms that are reasonable and fair. It doesn't mean you don't get paid a lot. It just means that they're reasonable and fair to both sides. Uh, you got to bring a deal that, you know, just that they can say yes to, that they can understand. And, you know, and then you got to bring some track record. I mean, so you got to, you know, you got to bring some stuff and, and then you got to be kind of likable. That's on the selling side. You know, if you're, if you're kind of a prickly person, uh, maybe then you're not going to be so successful. Maybe you <laughs> should be a property manager instead of a syndicator. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> you know, and go be prickly with other people. But but investors, I wouldn't be prickly with investors. Yeah, today. yeah, that all makes sense. I'd like to get a window into your experience moving from moving back from venture capital back to real estate, and some of the changes that or the differences that you noticed accepting that, you know, they're different asset classes, but some of the differences you notice either in terms of investor relations or uh, just generally how, how the businesses operate and maybe investor expectations too in, in each of those worlds. Can we talk about that a bit? Well, let me put it like this. Uh, venture capital is about a hundred times harder than real estate. Real estate is a piece of cake by comparison. Because you can take the person, uh, put them in your car, drive them over to an apartment building and say, we're going to be buying this apartment building. Would you like to get involved with us? Oh, yeah, that looks like a pretty nice building. What do you think the opportunity is here? Well, uh, it's got some broken windows. It's got cracked sidewalk. The pool needs to be redone. And a few other things need to happen. And then we can raise the rents. And this is what's going to happen. And the person says, gee, I understand that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'd like to do it. And they can knock on the wall and they can go and they can look at the deferred maintenance. Very simple for them to understand. In a venture transaction, you know, those guys are really uh, appealing probably more to greed than anything else. Real estate is not so much about greed. I mean, real estate, you, you want a good return, 8, 10, 12%, anything above that starts to be a little push in the envelope. But, you know, I mean, so you're offering a good solid rate of return to an investor who is potentially conservative. They just want to do something better with their money than put in the bank. A venture transaction though, you know, where somebody might reserve just one or two percent to put into these kinds of transactions. 
and that's usually the the Yale endowment formula, you know, where they say put twenty percent of your assets into uh, alternatives, and of that twenty percent, a little bit goes into some things like venture. I mean, that's the big uh, you know college formula, and I'm not prescribing that to any person because <laughs> I don't give people that kind of advice. But you know, that's that's kind of a formula that that some big organizations use. So a lot of times they'll put a few dollars into venture because every once in a while it, it goes to the moon. That's called a unicorn where it goes to a billion dollar valuation, uh, you know, in the first year or so. So, you know, it's, it doesn't happen very often, but it, uh, once in a while we've had a couple of this year, you know, Uber was one of those Lyft was one of those. I mean, so we've had a few, uh, this, uh, that vegan, that vegetarian meat one that, uh, that came out beyond meat. Beyond meat. Okay. So there's, there, there been some, um, you know, those are the ones that we hear about, and that actually is what fuels the fire, by the way. In fact, Las Vegas is the same way. If they didn't have a few winners, nobody would gamble, <laughs> right? right. right? <laughs> so the, the IPO market's the same way. If there weren't a few winners, nobody would ever do it, you know, because it's expensive to do it. But the venture business really appeals more to greed. And greed is, um, you know, people are all thinking that they're going to make 100 to 1 or 500 to 1 or whatever. And, and maybe they will. You know, maybe they will, or maybe they won't. So it's kind of a zero to hero mm, business. Mm. That's that's rough. And I wonder, how does that compare in terms of, you know, if people say, say take like a, a blended approach, you know, a real estate investor suppose is going to, I don't know, is, is your average venture capital investor, if they invest in a number of deals, what are their odds of coming across one of those unicorns, one of those big deals and all the other ones go to zero, but this one that blows up. I, I would, I would say it's, um, it's close to zero. Wow. Close wow. to zero chance. And the reason is that the best deals in Silicon Valley are all sucked up by insiders. You know, they're, they're just, they don't make it to the street. Now here, so here's what happens is what happens is people access those in the IPO market. But by the time it comes to the IPO market, like Facebook came out at what, 45 and now it's at 180, 200 bucks, whatever it is. So, you know, seven years later, it went up four times, which is fantastic, by the way. Mm -hmm. Very rare that a company goes up 400%. It's fantastic. But uh, those people have been in there for a long time. The people that really made money in Facebook are the people that didn't buy it at $45 a share. They're the guys that got it for a penny or two pennies or three pennies a share uh, in the private placement phase. So in real estate, we're talking about the private placement phase that never goes public, but Facebook was private placement and eventually went public. The money doesn't get made when it goes public. The money gets released when it goes public. So what that means is the people that bought it for a penny or two pennies or five pennies a share now have a place to sell their shares where they didn't have a place to sell before. But some guy now buys the share that somebody originally got for a penny for $45 you could see that the guy who got it for a penny is going to be rich sure. because he's going to sell a whole hell of a lot of shares and make uh, $49 and 49.99 cents or whatever, whatever, 44.99 or whatever the number is. So you could see how that happens. And now you got some schmo holding, uh, you know, you know, holding the, uh, the hot potato at $45 and hopefully it goes up and Uber went down, mm -hmm. you know, and it happens, you know, so uh, it's sort of a game of hot potato. But the real money is not made at the IPO level. The real money gets made at the private placement phase, which is what we're doing in real estate is we're doing private placements. We're just not getting to that point. Most of us aren't getting to that point where we go into an IPO and, and sell off the shares. Well, I understand that's because 
because the IPO is not where the money gets made. So you get exposure at the IPO level, but you want to get exposure at the private placement level. And if you're not being invited into private placements, then you're not going to really make any big money. Now, a guy that gets invited into a private placement, so let's say that I'm doing a private placement and I, because I did a lot of this kind of stuff, and I, uh, I go to Dr. Smith and I say, would you like to come into my private placement? Oh, no, way too risky. I don't want to do that. Okay, so you move on to the next guy. And actually, uh, there's a venture capital friend of mine uh, that tells this story. I mean, the most this is one of the worst stories I've ever heard. And I hope you oh, don't mind me telling this quick little story. Please, go this ahead. Is, this is a heartbreaker, you know. But uh, uh, the guy was telling me that, uh, you know, in 1995, uh, he gets a knock on the door, for, or maybe a phone call, whatever, from, from some entrepreneur saying that, some attorney had referred him in with a private placement. Uh, you know, would you, you know, would you come and take a look at it? You know, he does venture capital deals, this guy. So the uh, entrepreneur comes in and puts a business plan on his desk and says, uh, hello, would you please read the business plan? We're raising a couple hundred thousand dollars. And the guy says, yeah, happy to, happy to have a look at it. And uh, so he uh, takes the thing. And a week later, the entrepreneur comes back. And walks into the guy's office. The guy says, hey, listen, thanks very much for stopping by, but uh, we're going to pass on this. So the entrepreneur picks up his business plan and walks out the door. And just as he's leaving, he uh, pushes his head through the door and he pokes and he just says, uh, you know, just for feedback so I get better next time, you know, what is it exactly uh, that you don't want to, why don't you want to do my deal? And in 1995, this guy says, because I don't think it's possible to sell books on the internet. Oh, man. Oh, boy. <laughs> that $200,000 that the kid asked for, you know, and Jeff Bezos, by the way, that oh, yeah. 200000 bucks was is, is worth, you know, $100 billion now. I mean, it was it was it, <laughs> oh, it, it, it was it was like some astronomical amount of money that, that got wiped out. So the point is, this guy's a professional guy in the business of doing deals. And and Jeff Bezos knocks on his door in a private placement, and the guy just didn't think it was something he it would work out. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so the point is that these things are highly risky, and and you know, you you don't know, uh, you know, nobody knew that was going to what was going to happen, and you know, it's uh, that was a magical offering. Yeah. So, you know, and because it could have just it could have it could have invested in some other deal that went to zero, because that happened a lot too. And, and, you know, so that's, that's the deal. There's, there's people no way invest in real estate. People invest in real estate because it doesn't generally go to the moon and it doesn't go to zero. Yeah. And uh, when people were thinking it was going to go to zero, you know, 10 or 11 years ago, that was one of the best times to buy real estate and everybody that was buying then now is in such a fantastic position that you know they're waiting for that next <laughs> fantastic buying opportunity. Well, even 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 then, a lot of it didn't go to zero unless, sure. unless you were highly leveraged. But you know, it's you know, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is very fascinating. I think you know a lot of this venture capital stuff. I mean, that gentleman that you mentioned, he could have potentially been the second richest man in the world if he had made that deal. Yeah, right. You know, so so what happens is is that people tend to. Uh, do these things in private placement where they'll make, you know, uh, two times their money, four times their money, hopefully, you know, uh, but they don't make 400 or 4,000 or, or 40,000 times their money. Don't you remember the story about the, the painter at Facebook? Uh, they, they gave the guy a bunch of shares and he ended up cashing the shares in for 200 million. 
I mean, that's the same thing is, is the, um, you know, the guy got lucky and he got a bunch of shares and when they had the IPO, he was able to sell his shares. You know, that's, that's what happened. And if he held the shares uh, for these couple of years and he would have 800 million. So, you know, it's, um, I would have cashed out at 200. I mean, the problem with IPOs. Yeah. Well, listen, you know, but the thing is, then where do you put the money? I mean, you cash out, but you know, what do you, what do you do with the cash? Personally, I buy real estate. I, I think the problem with IPOs is exactly like you said earlier about Uber and Lyft is you don't know whether it's going to go up or down. There's no, there's no way, at least seeming to me, seemingly to me, to predict at on IPO day whether or not you're going to head up over the next month or two, or you're going to head down. Hey, listen, uh, and nobody's got a better crystal ball than you. That that's the thing. Nobody <laughs> has a better crystal ball. <laughs> Uh, nobody's crystal ball batteries are, are, are just not working in any of them. And that's just how it works, you know, but if you were to sell your shares, you know, you'd, you'd lose, uh, you know, 20 or 30% to, uh, and, and actually it could even be worse than that, depending on how they're taxed, because they could be taxed, uh, you know, as options instead of as shares. And if that happens, then, you know, you could lose 40%. Uh, and maybe then their state tax could be 50%. So that 200 becomes 100, then you go buy real estate with it. You know, it, it's it's a hard decision. It's not a clear cut, easy thing to decide. But but anyway, that that's hypothetical. Um, Very true. But you know, I've been around this business for a long time in real estate and venture and different places, and it's it's a good business. Nice. I would move to Puerto Rico. I think they have a, a good capital gains. Ex- Actually, they, they do now. They do yeah. now. Yeah. You know, and these opportunity zones are uh, are a great place to uh, you know get some tax relief. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a whole discussion on its own. I'd like to touch on, is there, was there anything in particular that brought you back from venture capital to real estate? I, I think that'd be really interesting. Yes. Yes, yes, there was. I, I got, I got sick of the, of the entrepreneurs. Interesting. I got really? tired of them. Yeah. Every entrepreneur thought their idea was worth a hundred million dollars. Uh, yeah. And most of them weren't worth a hundred dollars. I mean, people would call me. And they would, they would ask me for money and I'd ask them their idea. And, and I, I had to tell people, I said, you know what? I'm going to just tell you straight away. I, I hate to be rude. Go get a job. Stop oh, doing this idea right now and go get a job. It's a terrible idea. No one's going to do it. And, you know, I'm not in the habit of, of, of putting people down and telling them what they can't do. But I, I, there were a couple of people I just said to them, I said, listen, I'm, I'm doing your family the biggest favor I could do. This is not going anywhere. It just is not happening. And, you know, uh, so, you know, maybe maybe I was a little harsh, but maybe I did exactly the right thing. Well, you're doing what you think is right and giving them the best advice that that you think is valid. And in most cases, the vast majority of cases, you're probably right. But in the, I don't know, 10,001, one of those guys is going to be, can I sell books on the internet? Nineteen ninety five guy. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't hear any ideas that I thought were similar to uh, selling <laughs> books on the internet. I, you know, I mean, I let me just that. tell you this. Uh, I am a rather forward looking person. Uh, you know, I look at trends. I, I analyze uh, what's happening. Uh, I've been involved in disruptive innovation uh, for a lot of my career, and I've seen a lot of crazy stuff. So, uh, you know, I was very early in the internet. Very, very early in the internet. And, uh, you know, and I probably would have, uh, would have believed that it was possible. 
I may not have predicted how big, like like nobody else could predict how big. And by the way, Amazon is not just books anymore. You know, that's part of the genius. Uh, you know, and they convert themselves into a subscription business. I mean, they did a lot of things absolutely right. But, uh, you know, that being said, I, uh, you know, I mean, I couldn't have predicted it, but I might not have laughed at it either. True, true. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Okay, Joel, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, good. The first one, what is the best investment that you've ever made? The best investment I've ever made. Yes, sir. Um, you know, um, I used to play the IPO market and, and I did pretty well in the IPO market uh, years ago when I did that. Uh, I'd be in and out, you know, kind of like flipping houses. I would, I would flip stock. But probably the best real estate deal I ever did was a shopping center that we bought. Uh, we turned it over and made a, made a, a very solid profit in, uh, in a short amount of time. So um, it, it was a real estate deal for sure. Was that, was there uh, a market element to that? Was that like in 2008? Did you add value? No, it was, you know what we bought, we bought a property with, uh, with rents. This was in the eighties. It was the rents at that time were average 38 <laughs> cents. They were worth 85 and we spent the next, you know, we spent a year raising the rents of all the places, turning over the units. I mean, it was a hardcore fix and flip, you know I mean? We, we had to fix the place. Uh, it was a 38,000 square foot center, but we got paid for it. I mean, we got, we made a lot of dough for doing that. Yeah. That's a nice deal just based on the, those numbers uh, that you mentioned. So yeah, it's a, that's a great deal. Yeah, it was, it was, we did, we did very well on it. Nice. Nice. On the other side of that, what is the worst investment that you've ever made? Well, uh, actually there's another investment that, that was favorable by the way, but, but because I was so involved in, it, I really, I was thinking about real estate. I'll, I'll go back to a second. Uh, we bought some land that uh, just just was a was a turd. <laughs> you know, it just we just couldn't get our permits. The city was impossible to deal with. Uh, you know, that's the one piece of the due diligence that we didn't uncover. The land was fine. The architect was fine. The location was great. The city was no growth and was impossible to deal with. And I tried really hard. I mean, I was cozying up to everybody and I was trying to make it happen. And I just I couldn't get it to happen. So. Uh, we, we lost some money on that. It wasn't uh, wasn't devastating, but it was uh, you know it happened. Probably the single best thing that I was involved with, uh, though better than this piece of real estate. And I, I don't know why I forgot about it. I was thinking because I was thinking about real estate investing per se. But I did a, my first venture deal was a uh, uh, a financial publishing company that I raised a bunch of money for, and I ended up selling that company. So I grew this company over a several year period of time. And then ended up selling into a Fortune 500. So that that was really that was my big one. Nice. That's pretty cool. And that's a that must have been you know eighty hour weeks, hundred hour weeks of just. Well, I was I, yeah, I was traveling a lot. Uh, you know, I mean, but I didn't count the hours because I just, I loved every minute. I loved flying. I loved having meetings. I loved eating restaurants. I loved entertaining people. I mean, there was I loved everything about it. I, I just I loved everything. I loved the deal making. I mean, I, you know, they're just, I, I just didn't have a bad day. And when I had a day, things didn't go my way. I couldn't wait to the next day to make today go away and have tomorrow be better. You know I mean? It just, it was awesome. I mean, I just, I can't imagine the drudgery of working nine to five and <laughs> hating your job. Cause I look forward to getting up every single day. I got up early, came home late. I mean, you know, and, and I had a family, they were supportive and, you know, it just, it was, it was hard, but you know, but it worked out. Nice. Nice. I like that. Now, my favorite question here at the end of the show 
is what is the most important lesson that you've learned in business and investing? Um, I'll tell you what, uh, there's one thing that comes to mind. Uh, very, very dear friend of mine, mentor of mine, uh, somebody that was at the Fortune 500 company that bought my company that I became very close with. He said, uh, manage your knee jerks. Don't do a knee jerk. And, you know, think before you talk, think before you act, just take a deep breath, count to three. And I've really learned, you know, that, hey, listen, I may have an opinion about something, but I don't blurt it out. I, I, I sit and I think before I blurt it out. And, and it really was a habit that he helped me to get into as a youngster that has served me very well for my whole career. Really in all? In my life, not just my career, I'm in my life. So, you know, what I invest in, what I, how I negotiate, how I interact with people, you know, I try to avoid knee jerks and I I'm human like everyone else. And I do dumb things sometimes, but I try to take a deep breath so that I don't, you know, do dumb stuff too often. <laughs> so that's in, that's in all aspects of life. It's, it's been helpful, helpful for you from business where you're raising capital and doing deals and all the, to your personal life. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Limit your knee jerks. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I like that. I'm gonna have to I'm have to think about that one. So thank you for everything today. If people want to learn more, they want to get in touch, uh, where can they learn more about you and your business and, and everything that you do? Well, you know, um, the best, if people want to uh, get into the flow of our real estate syndication materials, the best thing that they can do, and maybe you can publish this yep. in the show notes, is take your phone and text the word asset to 72,000. We have, we publish videos, we publish all kinds of content, uh, which they're welcome to. Uh, if they just want to learn about me directly, they can go to uh, joelblock.com and they can learn about me. But if they want to get into the flow of our uh, videos and all of our stuff, which I highly recommend for people who are in the syndication business or they want to be in it, uh, text the word asset to 72,000, seven, two with three zeros. Nice. That will be in the show notes for anybody that missed it, but seven, two with three zeros. And, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll put that in there for you. Well, thank you for everything today. Hey man. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a great discussion. Thanks to everyone uh, for tuning in. I know I learned a lot today. I hope you did too. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's a big help. It helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into our little tribe we've got going here. Thanks for joining us once again. I hope you have a great day and a great rest of your week. And we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.